That's one thing we tried to do all along with Papa John's is we were a big chain and we were public, but we always tried to act like an independent pizzeria. We always referred to ourselves as um, America's largest independent pizzeria, you know, because we, we did all that. We hit the numbers and we made the money. We did all that. But the number one goal was take care of the product and take care of the people. So we were a public company, but we ran it like a private company. My guest today is John Schnatter. John is better known as Papa John, founder and former CEO of Papa John's Pizza. John's story reads like a Horatio Alger novel. He started off by purchasing used pizza equipment with the $1,600 he received from selling his car, a Z28 Chevy Camaro. He then converted a broom closet in the back of his father's pub, Mix Lounge, in Jeffersonville, Indiana, where he made his pizzas. He opened his first Papa John's restaurant in 1985, two years after graduating from Ball State University, where he delivered pizza on the side. He took the company public in 1993. Today, Papa John's is now the fourth largest pizza company in the United States with close to 3,300 locations in North America and another 2,000 locations in 49 countries, a total of 5,400 restaurants worldwide. I recently sat down with John to talk about how the opportunities he had when he first opened his first Papa John's are still around today, just waiting for the next entrepreneur to take advantage of them. All right, John, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate you being here. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, John, let's get right to it, man. There's been a lot of talk about you, but I just want to get right to something which I don't think people really focus on. You started a business that has 5,000 restaurants throughout the world employing how many people? 120,000. 120,000 people giving them jobs, giving them dignity, putting a roof over their heads, uh, sending their kids to school, making their car payments, making them motion, all from selling a Camaro back around <laughs> 40 years ago. Tell me that story, brother. Well, we had two fundamental beliefs from the beginning. Um, we said, if you make a better pizza and you take care of your team members, your employees, uh, that's a winning formula for success. Uh, it was a great 32-year uh, run to 5,000 stores, but <clears throat> I have to give all the credit to uh, the team members, to the franchisees, to the suppliers, to our communities, and most importantly, our, our employees. That was, the, that was a key factor in our success. So how'd you start this business? Take me back to the beginning, Mix Lounge, uh, selling your car, buying pizza equipment. Well, when I was 15, I was washing dishes at Rocky Sub Pub, Pub for Joe, John, and Frank Fondrisi, the Fondrisi brothers. And I was a dishwasher at 15 for 235 an hour. <clears throat> and right across from where I washed the dishes was where Joe Fondrisi would make pizzas. I hated washing dishes, Charlie. So. Uh, they got busy one weekend with a write-up in the local newspaper, blew the doors off the place. I was the first in line, and I got promoted for making uh, washing dishes to making pizza, which was a real honor in that family. And I fell in love with making pizzas, made pizzas with Chris Caramassini, the Greek, in Muncie, Indiana, Ball State, to get through college. And from a very young age, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Had the formula, recipes, um, the layout of the store and everything, even had the logo that a doormate came up with at La Follette dorm in 1982. Helped Daddy get out of bankruptcy with his little 50 cent beer joint called Mix Lounge, sold the car, we got solvent, took a sledgehammer, broke down the broom closet, <clears throat> put a kitchen in, started selling $5 pizzas out the back and uh, 50 cent beers in the front and that was our beginning. We did grow that into 5,000 stores and just shy of uh, $4 billion a year in sales. So when you started this, when you what, you said 15 years old, you started making pizza? I was 15 when I learned to make pizza from the Fondrisi's. Joe Fondrisi taught me how to make pizza. All right, so you're sitting there making pizza. You say it's, it's a better life than washing dishes. So you're, you're a high school kid with an after-school job, right? Making some, right. Making some pocket change. And right. you fall in love with making pizzas. Now, here's my question for you. At that point, when you started making pizza, did you think that one day uh, you're going to have a chain <laughs> throughout the world or are you just happy to make the next pizza? No, I just loved, you know, stretching the dough, making the dough, kneading the dough, spreading out the sauce, topping the pizzas. Uh, I would uh, 
uh, I was dating a girl in high school. I'd write little notes on the pizza when she come in out of the pepperonis. But no, I was just sheer enjoyment. And then I learned so much from Chris Caramassini about volume, doing big volume up uh, at a college campus, Ball State University, my alma mater. And then the first, uh, the first Papa John's, the goal was, Charlie, if I could make 50 grand a year, I could get a date. That was the goal. I thought if I could get make $50,000 a year, I could take uh, a young lady shopping or out to dinner and I could get a date. So that was the whole goal. None of this 5,000 store and billions of dollars. I had no, no idea it would turn into that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So it's the love of women and love of pizza that worked just perfectly together. That made you who you are. Now, here's my question to you. You're 17 years old. Your father has mixed lounge, right? It's a, it's a tavern or so, what is it? A, a pub? Or... It's a beer joint. Sydney said beer joint, bikers, fights every night. Really? Uh, just rough, smoky, uh, rough place to start. But you know, that's how I got the School of Hard Knocks at Mixed Lounge. Okay, so you have a high-level clientele, and you convince your dad, let me sell pizza out of a spare room? Is that what you, is that how that worked? Well, um, I had come up with a concept at Ball State University in 82 and put it in a box and hid it in my closet at home. And recipes, the logo, lighters, hats, everything, I had my dream in a box. And once I got the bar solvent, um, I decided then that I wanted to sell pizzas. And so I took a sledgehammer, knocked down a broom closet, left one hell of a mess and left a note on the cash register the next day for my operating partner, Bob Erringer, and said, Bob, I got a great idea. So he walks in the next uh, day to Mix Lounge, which is completely a train wreck because I tore it up with that sledgehammer and looked at the note and go, what the hell is this all about? So we pulled that old box out of the closet and we started building the broom closet. Um, uh, borrowed $1,600 worth of used restaurant equipment from Tony Manley at Food uh, Supply Company down on Main Street in Louisville and uh, started selling $5 pizzas out of the back and 50 cent beers in the front. We're doing $1,000 a week in pool revenue. So we're sitting there at 21 years old. Wait, wait, hang on. Years. Hang on, John. $1,000 a week, $5 pizza and 50 cent beer. That's a lot of pizzas. How, are you making this all yourself? Believe it or not, the first six or seven months, I wouldn't let anybody else make a pizza because I thought I was the only one that could make one right. And uh, that got to be a lot of long hours. But um, we um, we did $300 a week in the broom closet. And then um, one Tuesday night, my brother and I were working a shift and we did $200, $200 on a Tuesday in a broom closet. And we were jumping up and down. We thought, we're rich. How can you do $200 in a broom closet then we did a thousand for a week and then two, we finally did 3000 a week, blew the doors off the thing and moved next door. And once we moved next door, we put a sign on the front door because the broom closet didn't have a sign and the business went to 9,000 a week. And I thought, wow, if you put a sign on the front door, it really helps business. I mean, I didn't know. I thought if you had the best pizza, it didn't matter if you had a sign on your door or not. But hang, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I'm in New York. We have a pizza place every six and a half feet and the best pizza places in the world. Now, yes. you, you open a store in Indiana. Is it, are there no pizza places in the place? Are you the only pizza shop in the whole state? Well, I'll give you the good and the, and the bad. The, the, uh, the bad is Jeffersonville was probably the worst place in the world to start a pizzeria. I remember doing that $9,000 week and marched down to the Domino's four miles down the road. Went in, of course, I'm just full of piss and vinegar, I'm ready. You know, I'm like, we're doing 9,000 a week. And I said, what are you doing? He said, we're doing six grand a week. And I looked at him, I said, we're going to beat you in the whole world. If you're doing six as a national chain and we're doing nine, we have a better pizza. The good news in the story is that Louisville, Lexington, Columbus, Ohio corridor is the genesis, um, is the pool of fast food. Denny's, Chi-Chi's, Rally's, Long John Silver's, Jerry's, White Castle, Donato's, Bob Evans, Papa John's, KFC. So if you can be successful in Louisville, Lexington, and Columbus, you can usually have something that's franch franchisable. So I was at the right place, but not exactly the right place. But did you know that? Did you know that that was the corridor, or you just happened to stumble upon it because you saw Domino's down the block? No, I fell in love with I, I did it because I love business, learning how to make money at Mixed Lounge, and I love making pizza. Um, no, hell no. I didn't know. I didn't have that kind of data. 
that, I mean, remember, I'm trying to make 50 grand a year and get a date. I didn't have, no, we weren't real sophisticated. Remember, I didn't have a sign on the front door because I didn't think you needed a sign. We put a sign on the front door and the business tripled. So, so, so how did people know uh, about your pizza? They came in for the beer? Well, we did these uh, leaflets, these flowers. We put them out. We give them the address, you know, uh, whatever address Mixed Lounge was in, in Jeffersonville. And we're in the back. People would walk in the bar because you had to go to the bar to get to the back of the broom closet, the pizzeria. And they would look in there and just like be mesmerized, like, where's the pizzeria? And they couldn't, they couldn't figure it out. And they both said it's in the back of the broom closet. So yeah, that's that was just kind of how it was. Everything was kind of clumsy because we weren't very sophisticated and we'd never been in business before outside of Mixed Lounge. So you had the passion. You said, I love pizza. I love not only eating it, but making it. You enjoyed the whole process. You start the business, success finds you because you never set a major plan out there. You didn't have, it wasn't Wharton students coming up with spreadsheets and all sort of business plans. You basically got out there. Now, people ate the pizza and pizza pizza's a pretty commoditized item. There's a zillion pizza places and it really, the barrier to entry to start a pizza business is really not hard, right? It's, you'd agree with me on that. What made your pizza back in 1982 or so what made it so much better that you're doing, would you say, 9000 a week or 6000 a week or so uh, when Domino's? We're doing 9000 9, Domino's is doing 6000 But now you're starting to talk to my belly with, which is food quality, authenticity, uh, superior products. That, that, that's, the peak, that's the part I dig. I have a passion for that. We learned about fresh packed sauce at Rockies. Um, we learned an even handset with fresh tomatoes at Creek's Pizzeria. We understood the Munster blend that Chris Caramassini used with the mozzarella blend at Rockies. Um, we did a little work with Crawl's Bakery, a little bit of, they had a real good uh, eclair, kind of donut kind of thing. So we learned a little bit about baking. Um, short stint at Domino's, short stint at uh, Mr. Gatty's Pizza. So we just went around everywhere and stole everybody's best ideas to make a better pizza. You know, that, that I find to be so amazing because I see that in the investment business cloning, which is really what you're doing, cloning, you're going out there and finding the best. Like for instance, it's Sam Walton, Walmart. He said, I didn't get, I didn't have an original idea. He went and shopped the marketplace, went to Price Club and saw what Sol Price was doing and Costco followed what Sol Price was doing. And they figured out what other people were doing and say, we can do this. Let's find what we can innovate on. And I find that, that people like to create the wheel from scratch and it's really all out there. It's just taking the best from the best and putting it all together, no? Well, if you if you talk to the folks that are really smart with marketing, that demographics and segmentation and all that, <clears throat> um, Little Caesars is cheap. It's priced. Pizza with their salad bar and all the different crusts is variety. Domino's is speed. So quality was a, a great way to flank the category. Now, that if you talk to somebody at Harvard or MBA marketing, they'll say, well, it's obvious. You know, you got you flank it with quality. To me, it was just intuitive. It's just what I liked. It just happened to be what the market wanted. I.e., I looked at Domino's and Tom Onahan. With all the success they were having, I thought, what if you did what Tom's doing and you had a better pizza? And there the, you go. And the reason your pizza was so much better back in 82, back when you were in that broom closet, was because you were going out there and getting the best possible uh, a quality ingredients and you kept learning what others were doing and just incorporating that? Yes and no. We have never uh, cut corners until I left in uh, 2016. <clears throat> They've cut corners since I've left, but that's what big companies do. But we never ever intentionally cut a corner on an ingredient or quality. We didn't know in 84 what we knew in 2004. Other words, when you get bigger, you do get more insight and more uh, innovations on what makes quality products better. For example, our uh, our sausage used to be made out of you know things like nitrates and parts of the cow that I just didn't think were desirable. We went to the tenderloin, we got rid of the nitrates, um, you know, all the chemicals. So we we always tried to do the right thing. Sometimes we just didn't know what the right thing was, but as soon as we found it out, we went right to it. So you became, for example, I don't know if you have a better word, really fanatical about quality. Fanatical is an understatement. I just think you can't fool people. I think if you're not putting your best foot forward, if you say better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's, you've got to live up to that. Not only how the pizza's made, 
but how your store looks, how you treat your employees, and how you put it together. How we put our product together, which is very difficult to do it and do it well, um, is as much about our quality story as the ingredients. But yeah, if you're going to say better, you have to be better everywhere. If you're Mercedes Benz, you have to have better tires, better brakes, better, better, better. You know, if you're Papa John's, you you have to walk the talk. Otherwise, you're trying to fool the consumer. Maybe once or twice you can fool somebody, but after the second or third time, they kind of catch on to the nonsense. So. If you're not living up to those standards and that level of superiority, then uh, they just, you know, it's a hyper uh, competitive uh, category. So they, you lose, uh, you lose that customer. So if I was back in 1982 and walked into your store, when would you open your first Papa John's store, a real store with a, with a, with a name on the front of the store? When, what year was that? Room closet, room closet, April of 84, the first store next to mix, April of 85. Okay. I walked into there in 1985 and, and walked into your store. I would have, Fantastic pizza because the quality of the ingredients, you were on top of it, you were making it, you were making sure it was perfect. I would be greeted properly. The floor would be clean. The ingredients would be nicely displayed. I would have a tremendously great experience. Is that what you're telling me? Yes, 100% because I made, we made every pizza. We were there night and day. Only time we took off was half a night, Sunday night. And by that time, we had trained people to do a pretty good job by 85. But yeah. Um, when we were on the first three stores, we could physically run all three stores with my partner I, and a few supervisors. But yes, it, it would have been a damn good experience. You see that a lot of entrepreneurs like yourself uh, today, uh, that they have that commonality with you, that they focus on the details with which other people just, or big corporations just gloss over. You see that as an issue? I think the thing you get with big corporations is stock price. You know, if you look, 80% of the Fortune 500 companies 30 years ago are no longer there. 80%. So, I mean, the numbers are staggering on, on when you lose the founder, you lose the entrepreneur, usually you lose the heart and soul of the company. There are, there are a few examples where that's not the case, but that, you know, that's the norm. And I think uh, the reason Papa John's is struggling the way are, they are, uh, they're doing well in COVID because they got a monopoly, but the product quality has slipped really bad. The service is slipped really bad. Uh, the cleanliness of the stores is not what it used to be. And they've really lost their value system, the principles. I think entrepreneurs are principally centered, kindness, a mutual respect. Um, they act in a way where everybody wins. Otherwise, they're not going to be successful. So they understand the mutual benefits of being an entrepreneur and that everybody wins. And that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. As we went to 5,000 stores, we brought everybody up. Uh, the funnest thing that I've ever done in the history of business with me is promoting people, giving people raises, and watching them succeed. That's the fun part. And that's what breaks my heart about this situation in St. Louis because that is typical to what we, you know, we did for 34 years. Right. So let me get back to, to, to you start your first store. Uh, then you have, how long does it take you to get three of them? We had three by the end of 1986. We had, we had three stores by 86. Okay, so One store in 85, three in 86. So it's not an overnight success. It does take time. <laughs> you didn't have like a thousand stores tomorrow. Okay. So <laughs> I, I want my listeners to understand because we have them from all ages, uh, entrepreneurs uh, out there. You don't start a business and make a zillion dollars overnight. It just doesn't happen other than in fairy tales. It's a lot of blocking and tackling and doing the stuff that mopping the floors and <laughs> basically making sure you back, simple things like getting the best ingredients that people just don't think is important. And you basically are telling us that's what made Papa John's. Yeah. The analogy I like to make is like building a building. You know, you just lay a brick and you lay another brick. It doesn't look like you've done much. But if you do it day in, day out, before you know it, you got a skyscraper. And we just built it one store at a time. You know, we just hustled every day. And then all of a sudden we had 10 and then we had 20 and then we had 100 and then we had 200 and then we had 1,000. But it's that one brick at a time, those little baby small wins on the way to the grand victory. Okay. So now you have three stores, five stores, this. Any time in those first early years where you just woke, at, woke up out of bed and said, Man, I don't, I don't think so. I, I just, there are too many obstacles here. I'm just, I, I got to give up. One time in the room closet, we're, we're, we're struggling. We're 
two, three, four months into this, and we're not, we're doing 900 bucks a week, 800 bucks a week. And you, you know, it just was not in the bars still doing seven, eight grand a week. So we're, we're making money in the bar. And I thought about throwing in the towel and we said, no, you know, people really like the product. The return business was, you know, really high. Let's just keep at it for another two or three months. And then all of a sudden click, it just happened. And she took off and all of a sudden we're doing three grand a week and you, there's not enough room in a broom closet to do $3,000 a week in pizza sales. And we built the first door. But one time I did feel like quitting and I'm not a quitter. So it can get, you know, even those long days and long nights and not having any social life and putting your blood, sweat and tears into something you, you can get discouraged, but uh, as Jimmy V says, never give up, never give up. You know, uh, you've mentored probably zillions, I don't know zillions, but a lot of entrepreneurs over the years, over your 40 some odd years of business. Do you find that that's one trait that great entrepreneurs have? Is they're too stupid to realize ever to give up? <laughs> well, for sure, in my case, I was definitely too stupid. Um, I don't know about anybody else. Um, I'd say tenacity and resilience and um my definition of a entrepreneur that loses is he hear no, hears no 400 times and says the answer is no. I define a successful entrepreneur as somebody hears no 400 times and says, ha ha, the answer is yes. I think tenacity and persistence beat, uh, beat talent and genius at just about every time. Okay. I, I totally agree with you. I, I, you know, uh, uh, Ace Greenberg of Bear Stearns, chairman for many years, he wanted PhD, you know, poor, hardworking and driven people. You know, that was his PhD. And if you're going to hardworking, you're going to make it. He was, he was looking for degrees. He was looking mm. for grit. You know, he's looking for grit. That's really what separates. Because intelligence, we all have more or less the same. Some a little smarter, some not. But it, you don't need intelligence. You don't need connections. You didn't have any connections. You basically had a broom closet and a sledgehammer and a car that you sold. So uh, you finance the business yourself. You put your blood, sweat into it. The thing starts growing. When do you hit that point where you say, wow, this is really a success? I'm, I, I think we got something here. Um, we had an insatiable appetite for quality. And if I found a better mixer, a better awning, a better manager, I didn't really care. I just wanted the best. And so our checking account was always overdrawn. And we started in 87, 88. We were started making, you know, three, four, 500 grand a year. And I still was spending the money uh, faster than, than I could make it. And um, I think in 1990, we closed around 30 or 35 stores. I still could not make it as fast as I, I spent it. And I kept waiting for that inflection point where I'd be big enough that I could meet where I was spending it. And finally about 180, 190 stores, I couldn't spend it as fast as I was making it. So absolutely, you know, we, um, you, you, you know, you, you, you look for, when you're overdrawn in a checking account, you got to get that inflection point because your, your bank's calling you every day and saying, by the way, you're overdrawn. We took it public in uh, June of 1993 with 232 stores. And that's where we went from, I didn't have $5,000 to take the family out on a vacation to where literally, the company was worth 200 million bucks or whatever it was. So in one day, and you're 31 years old, they don't teach you how to make $200 million in one day. So you can imagine the, the peripheral tangibles that came along with that kind of wealth. But I really didn't enjoy the ride till 2000 because of the fear of failure. So I was operating because I didn't want to fail. And then I said, this is crazy. I've got 2,800 restaurants and we're making all this money and I'm still scared of going broke. I'm scared, still scared of being in the broom closet. I'm still scared of Vietnam. That was Vietnam in my head, my former Vietnam. And um, I flipped it to like a Jack Nicklaus um, or say a Kobe who played for the love of the game. You know, they played out of the best of themselves. And from 01 to 05, we straightened out our quality. The stock was 10 bucks a share, we took it to 44. And I started enjoying the success. And that was a huge swift shift mentally from going to fear of failure, where you're taking, you're afraid you're gonna miss, which is a terrible way to go through life, or Michael Jordan, where you wanna take the shot because you know you're gonna make it. 
And, um, but I really didn't enjoy this, the wealth until the turn of the century. So, so I'm, I'm just trying to get this from 82 to 90 to 93. So 11 years, you go from a broom closet to a public company. Right. What's this fear of failure? What, 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 would, you, what would you fail that you had how many hundreds of stores? You just became public at 31 years old. What do you think that uh, Cinderella, the, the clock's going to strike midnight? You're going to, this is going to turn back into a pumpkin? You know, I, I was broke. And when you're broke, you don't want to ever go back to being broke. And um, I think, um, I, you know, I think the key to the key to higher power is, is humble and being gracious and grateful. I, I really do think that's the key to a higher power. And that's the keys to the vault. If you want to live a higher level of spirituality, just be humble. And if you don't, certainly you're going to get humbled anyway. So pick your poison. You do it or just wait for the train to come around the tracks and just knock you upside the heads because you got a little bit of arrogance in your your personality. Um, and with arrogance, you know, then then you stop taking care of people and you lose lose your values and you then you're really going down a bad uh, a bad uh, rabbit hole. But um, I, I just did not want to go broke. And my mom at store three said, "Don't open another store." She said, "That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. You got three stores, you're making you know 200 grand a year. Just stop." She would say, "Stop." So. My mom was always very frugal and very cautious. My dad kind of was the other side of the coin. He was kind of spendthrift. He liked to gamble and he, you know, liked to, he didn't save. So I had one side of the family that kind of was accountable and liked to save their money, get ahead. And I had another side of the family that liked to live for the moment. And um, the two dichotomies of those personalities was extremely beneficial. Um, but one's a losing hand long-term and the other one, you know, you, uh, you preserve your wealth and you get on with it. So I think that, uh, fear of failure came from watching my dad kind of self-destruct. Mm. Yeah. So during those years, the early years, your comp- who are you, who's your main competitor at the time? They were those Domino's pizza at the time, right? This pizza hut. <clears throat> yeah. Pizza hut was the Carney brothers. I think all of them are about 1960. Illich, Monahan, and the Carney brothers all about 1960. So all big of the three players were there. Now, when I was coming up, they owned about 35% of the market share, 40%, and the independents had 60, 65. Uh, today, the major chains have about 50, 55. Local regional chains have, you know, four or five, and the independents have about 40%. So it was the same, basically the same competitive set. You know, it's amazing because I'm in New York and I always grew up with, there was never a chain of, you know, we used to laugh at chains, pizza chains. They can't make it as good as the Italian guy down the block who we know since we were kids. And, you know, DeFaro's, for example, on, on, uh, in, in Brooklyn, he grows his own spices and takes care, you know, does everything from scratch himself. And you wait online for hours and hours to eat a pizza. So uh, it, it just amazed me that pizza is the one business that a franchise or a big chain could really, uh, you know, butt up against an independent and not win. Yeah. A um, couple of things to your point. Um, fresh pack sauce uh, versus paste or concentrate um, is twice the money. You know, you buy a bag in the box paste for nine or 10 bucks a case, and you buy a fresh pack sauce out in the valley uh, that's packed, you know, within six hours of the, the vine to the can and used, um, that's more like, um, that's more like 19 or $20. So it's double. And 90% of the pizza sauce used, the fresh pack sauce used in the whole country is either New York or Chicago, New York or Chicago. So the independent pizzerias in New York can tell the difference between paste, mediocrity and superiority, which is fresh packed. Um, but yeah, we've, um, we've always believed that people could tell the difference. And if you're going to say better, you got to walk the talk. So how, how about your profit margins? Now that you're buying more expensive ingredients, how were you competing against the, the, uh, pizza huts and the dominoes? Well, another great question. Um, remember, um, the, the category is now 60% chains, regional chains in the big four and 40% independents. If you take Papa John's, and that's why the, the company's in trouble, <clears throat> is Domino's and Pizza Hut and Little Caesars are very good at what they do. The regional chains are good at what they do. And you also have 40,000 John Schnatters out there that are hungry. 
I mean, I'm not the only one. I mean, they're all want to be, you know, two, three, four, 20, 200, whatever stores. So you have this tremendous, uh, powerful force called independent pizzerias, which are grill, grill warfares. Oh, by the way, go to the supermarket and get a four or $5 frozen pizza. So the- well, Before you the go on, how good are those? You've tasted them. How, how good are they? How close are they? Are they any, is there, are there, don't name a brand. I don't, I don't want you to advertise for anybody, but how good is the best frozen pizza in the supermarket compared to uh, a store-bought pizza? I think it's completely different. Um, but for four, five, six bucks, I think it's it's very good. It's definitely great value. Um, Little Caesars for five bucks a pie is a. I mean, they use fresh back sauce. That's 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 a, the the value proposition on that is incredible. But um, there is a difference between a you know a five dollar frozen pizza and eleven or twelve dollar Papa John pizza. But if you're going to charge eleven, twelve bucks, where the other guy's charging five, it damn better be twice as good. So I think it's just a question of what you're in the mood for. But if you are going to spend up, you know, you got to deliver on that uh, that value proposition with the quality. That's how you get there. But um, if you if you make the slightest error in the pizza business, pizza delivery business, uh, it's so hyper competitive that there's no room for margin. You also hit on another thing very interesting is, okay, with COVID, maybe a lot of the independents did shut down, but the barrier to get in the category at $150,000, $200,000, any John Schneider can buy a pizza oven and a broom closet and go back in business. And that's what I think once COVID, I've made this prediction loud and clear, that the product of Papa John's and the service and the, and the cleanliness and the transparency and the principles uh, and the integrity the company operates on uh, in this hyper competitive market, when that thing starts to go down, I think it's going to be a pretty quick fall. Okay, so let me ask you a question, man. You come to New York. We become partners. We want to open up a pizza shop. I'm going to look at you and say, John, there's no way I'm putting up a dollar. It's just hyper competitive. Every, there's no real secret here. Anyone could come in and taste our product. They could clean their floors. And in fact, now with COVID, you can't even go into a store. So put that all aside. How are we going to differentiate? How could we do the magic you did in 82? You're going to tell me what? Okay, first of all, we don't go to New York. That's store number one. No, <laughs> you're better, better off jumping off, not jumping off a bridge, but you go to an Orlando, Florida, or somewhere where uh, there's less regulation. Uh, people are flooding in this, uh, this part of the country, maybe the East Coast, um, maybe you hit Gainesville, uh, Georgia Tech, um, maybe a few Army bases. You hit a few of the big ones that are really, really good. And if you want to get in a hurry, like me, like I, I like I like big, you know, uh, things that are scalable. You take a hard look at a Jets pizza, which I'm very good friends with um, with John Jet and uh, Jimmy Galloway, the, his brother-in-law. But that's what those they got 400 stores. Uh, they use fresh pack sauce. They make their dough in the stores. They have a, a product differentiation point of view, and they, they rock in the areas I just mentioned. So you go, you go get involved with the Jets pizza. Okay, so our, so our first, you just leap over all that. So, so your first thing, which you mentioned, which is really insightful, is I'm I'm in the wrong marketplace. I'm in a marketplace that will cut me cut me to pieces. So don't even don't even don't even try to compete there. My rent's okay. going to be enormous. My pricing's going to be higher. Uh, there are a zillion guys down the block that are going to probably just as good, if not better, than me. And I'm never going to be able to get a toe held. And you don't know what de Blasio is going to do, which is even worse. Right, you don't right. know what he's going to do. That's a problem. No, no, no. 100%. He's not exactly pro-business. He's not exactly good for New York City. Okay. So my first mistake was calling you to New York to open up a pizza place. So right there, you don't want me as a partner. Okay. So now, <laughs> the first thing you I do, <laughs> but, you're for, but, but that's insightful. You first basically say is, here's, here's the markets we want to play in. Let's get a toehold in them because we have a much greater opportunity. And then once we find the right marketplace, then you're telling me that we could scale this because of all those advantages you brought up, such as cleanliness, like a jet. How are we going to compete with Jets? I don't think you compete with Jets. I think you get involved as a partner with Jets. But they don't you want know? me. They don't want me. I, I want to start my own thing. I don't want to be partners with anybody except you. I can help, I can help you out there. But... Um, I still would like to buy a small chain, you know, that believes in quality. Um, uh, we could start with one, just know it's going to take 
uh, a lot of time to get the two. Okay, so, uh, so, so you answer my question. So the magic never disappeared in this country. From what happened in 82, close to 40 years ago to today, it still can be done. There can be the, the next John oh, yeah. out there who's going to have 5,000 stores in another 10, 20 years from now. The only thing that changed are a couple of small nuances, but everything, the conditions are still ripe. Is that correct? Absolutely. I think, now, if you, now remember, I'm 22. Then we got a whole different John Schneider. I'm 59 years old to start back with one and wait three years to get to six. I don't think I have the patience for that, but absolutely. America is still the best place in the world to be. And you can do everything we just talked about in a local pizzeria. I actually think the independence, uh, as the chains get bigger and bigger, and the focus is on stock price, and the focus is getting away from mutually beneficial relationships with regards to principles, I think the independent restaurateur is at a competitive advantage. Uh, absolutely. Um, I had the great fortune. I started in 1984. Well, that was at the pinnacle of Reaganomics. So it helps when you have a pro-president business, a pro-mayor as far as business, a pro-governor. Um, but, um, you know, if you, you have a, a jurisdiction or a community that wants you to be there and wants you to be successful and wants to do, you know, we went to Lexington, Kentucky. It took me six months to get the fire marshal to give me a permit. I can remember being up in the Northeast and they, they'd hold us up for two years for a permit. That's not pro-business. That's over-regulating. So, I, you know, I think if you go to the right market, I like, I do like Lexington, Kentucky, if you and I did a deal. I like Orlando, Florida. Uh, I like Atlanta, Georgia. I like Atlanta. Definitely like Dallas, Texas, Austin, Texas, um, Carolinas, Charlotte, Greensville, the Triangle, Raleigh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of places we can go because capital no longer is a, a limiting. I didn't have the capital earlier on. Now we have the capital. But there's plenty of opportunities. I think with the, the COVID, we come out of this, assuming we don't get ourselves in a little bit of a negative uh, headwind with regards to fuel price. We'll pick on fuel price. Um, the the pipeline, Keystone Pipeline, that's four percent of the take. I mean, it's twenty million barrels a day, and the that that pipeline produces eight hundred thousand. So you just lost four percent of your supply. You combine that with the economy open backing up. Now all of a sudden, you don't have a supply issue. You got that going down, and the demand issue going up. You're going to see fuel prices rocket through three or four bucks a gallon. That's just one thing. You throw on regulations, you throw on all this other nonsense, 15 bucks an hour. That does put a lot of pressure and a lot of headwind into the face of the entrepreneur, the independent uh, pizzeria. Absolutely. So when you're starting a business, and this this is, you know, uh, Warren Buffett said, it's much easier to swim with the tide than perfect your stroke, right? So you happen to have a great tailwind pushing you. Everything was lining up to keep you moving forward. And now basically you're telling me here, which I think is great for our listeners and those who want to start a business, I think the one mistake is they face a headwind and say, I'm going to beat this headwind. Instead of turning the sails around and going with a tailwind, they basically go right up a headwind and boom, and they're out of business in a heartbeat. I wouldn't say they're out of business in a heartbeat. I would say that, um, you know, even, even on the darkest night, there's always a few shining stars. So there's going to be a lot of people that come out of this environment as winners. Um, I just, I love entrepreneurs. Um, and, and when I have a lot of friends that are, you know, both sides of the aisle and, and I don't get emotional with it because that provokes anger and it's not good for friendships. I just simply say, if you do this, you're going to get this result. It's cause and effect. If you want a New York City, you ordered the Blagio, you're going to get a New York City. If you want a Louisville, Kentucky, which is a complete train wreck right now, it's a, it's a, it's a disaster uh, when this new mayor, Greg Fisher, took over. But if that's what you wanted, order a Greg Fisher. I can't quite do that emotionally with a small business owner because I was a small business owner and I get pissed. When I hear him taking fuel to three or four bucks a gallon, when I hear him taking minimal wage to $15, when I hear about all these regulations, I hear about the printing of the money, that hurts the small business owner. I do get infuriated with that. When do you decide to go franchise? When do you start franchising? A great question. We um, remember that corridor, Louisville, Lexington, uh, Columbus, Ohio, that was the franchise capital of the world. My brother uh, was, uh, was in law school and we had an agreement. I'll put you through law school if you'll do my legal work. 
he worked for the biggest firm in Kentucky, which is Greenbaum, Dole, and McDonald. They were experts on franchising. So at store four in 1986, we had uh, what they call a UFOC, Uniform Offering uh, Curriculum, uh, already drawn up. So we franchised at 87. So we we franchised like store number six, five to seven, six or seven. Uh, again, all the stars just lined up. Another thing that happened that was pretty remarkable is we're on a run, two, three, four. Domino's and Pizza at Little Caesar said, ah, that's not our guy. He's never going to do anything. And they let me through that window of opportunity. They should have smashed me. How could they How could they have smashed you? What would they, if you were them, what would you have done? Price, marketing, and kept me contained. They wouldn't have smashed me. They were never going to put me out of business, but they could have kept those 200 stores, 300 stores under wraps. They ignored me because they didn't think I was going to go anywhere. We fought like heck to get through that window of opportunity and get to SOAR 2000 because it's 2000. Now we had an Air Force. What's an Air Force? National marketing. So they shouldn't have let me get through that window of opportunity. They should have contained me and soared through 300. So Reaganomics, um, you know, favorable economic conditions, competition ignoring us, just all the stars aligned for me to get through that opportunity and get this thing to 5,000 stores. Plus I had the best people. Now, 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 let me understand this. When you're out there franchising and you're public about it, you want to, you want to bring franchisees in, Domino's is watching you and, and they're just sitting on the sidelines saying, let this guy go get these people. I'm, we're not going to be, they're not even a speck on our radar. They didn't wake up to SOAR 2000. Wow. And Domino's is having issues. Remember, Monaghan got off the Domino's bus, I think, around between 84 and 88. Well, that's right when we started. So he kind of got off. Uh, I think Bain Capital bought them. Mm-hmm. Um, they were pretty arrogant at the time. Uh, they had a guy running the company who was extremely arrogant. So he kind of ignored us. And then we got through it. Um, but then since then, Domino's is one of the few companies that if you look at Doyle, Patrick Doyle, um, that guy did a nice job with that business. Most companies that take over entrepreneurs usually fail pretty quickly. If there's some in there's some family in it or there's some somebody there to kind of coach the value system and the core competencies. But Patrick Doyle with Domino's is the one guy that took uh, that company uh, when it was a three bucks a share. And I think he's running up to he ran it up to 270 or whatever. And then they've even taken it up from there. But uh, that Domino's is a case study on where you can take over an entrepreneur's business and succeed in a big way. And they did a Domino's. What, what do they do so much better than everyone else? I think they stuck to their knitting on um, service, speed. Domino's probably has, for every three Papa John's in an area, they probably have four or five, so they're much quicker to the door. Um, they, We beat the entire category to the punch with regards to technology because we were the ones that came up with the Internet around 2001. So we were ahead. And then I left the company in 05, 06. We brought in outside management, a guy named Nigel Travis. And then we, we lost our competitive advantage on technology. We lost our quality advantage and the kind of thing deteriorated. Then I came back in nine or 10, it's $6 a share. We fixed the technology, we fixed the quality, we fixed the service. We took it up to about 88, 89 bucks a share. And then I got off the, uh, I got off the bus at the end of 16. So, so that first franchisee, uh, you had all the passion, you had all the belief what about that guy who's your first franchisee? Like that must have been an amazing day where you could have someone take your dream and buy into it. Yeah. Remember like it was yesterday, um, my uncle John, John Ackerson, went to church with Roger and Scott Roloff over at St. Mary's. <clears throat> and uh, Scott was a manager for Domino's, Scott Roloff. And they said, hey, we want to come over and potentially look at a Papa John franchisee. So we sold Scott and Roger uh, franchise, I think in 86 or 87. And to this day, they're still there. That's the and first one. Rent- That's the first That's franchise. The first yeah, and Karen Roloff, Scott's sister, runs that store, well, actually two stores to this day, and they do tremendous volume. They're, they're very good operators. In fact, they have two stores in our hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. And everybody always asks, why don't you take the Roloffs out? Why don't you just own the whole market? And my answer was because they're entrepreneurs. They're they're great operators. And if somebody is a great operator and they work the business every day, why would you want to lose that? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the gold. Were you concerned as fanatical you are with 
all of the details and the superior quality and the cleanliness. Were you concerned when you took these franchisees on, not number one, maybe number seven or eight, how am I going to maintain my control over this by having people who are not family, not connected to me? It's a worse problem than that. If you have a franchisee that's making less than 500000 a year, let's say, he knows that I'm smarter than he is. You get a franchisee making over 600000 a year, he thinks he's smarter than me. So you not only have um, the part of standards and measuring standards, you have a little bit of an arrogance that it's, you know, I'm, it's not a franchise, I'm the franchisor. So all in all, I mean, our top franchisee, he's pretty difficult to operate, our biggest guy, he's pretty difficult. He's not real high on quality or cleanliness or service. Our second largest franchisee actually is very astute with quality and service and cleanliness. So it really is a, um, kind of a sifting mechanism you have to put in place. Uh, when I left, we had eight levels of sifting before you could get that store. Because if you don't screen, if you don't screen diligently, you let anybody have a store, it's sooner or later it's going to come back to bite you. And that's a, that's a losing hand long-term. So you got to be really good when you screen the franchisees and then you got to hope and pray you did the right thing. So when you're 25, 26, when you're doing this, you had the foresight to say, I'm going to be, I'm going to be really sharp at screening who I let into my family. No, if you had a peg, a wall over there with a thousand dots and each dot was a mistake. I hit every dot. So no, we didn't start out with the right screening. That's the problem. We got too many franchisees. In fact, one of the mistakes I made at the end was I thought I could kind of change or live with some of the, the really bad apples. We have a guy in Orlando, I have a guy in, you know, San Antonio, Texas. Uh, the guy I referred to you the largest, I mean, we had some guys in that were just bad apples that we should have taken out uh, that are probably going to eventually take this brand down. Um, but no, in the beginning, we didn't have a good screening process. And at the end, we had a real good screening process to not let people in. We should have had a better process to get the bad apples out. And we didn't. And that's one of the reasons we lost the company. So uh, looking back on it, was you think you went uh, franchise too early? Should you maybe have perfected it better and got out all the, all the mistakes earlier? Or if you had to do it again, would you do the same thing? Well, if you looked at Papa John's when I left, we made 40 million on distribution, 60 million on corporate stores, and we took in 100 million on um, franchise rolling, 200 million bucks. Okay, Charlie. So 50 million was GNA. So the company was making 150 million pre-tax. That's that was the the income. So the 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 good news is the franchisees do pay you 100 to 110 million a year. The bad news is they are a lot of work. I mean, they are a lot of work to deal with. It's very political. They, they're all marketing geniuses. They all know more than you know. So, but again, the good news is when somebody's paying you 110 million a year, you kind of put up with it. But you're not that type of guy. <laughs> I, you have to be a little bit, otherwise you don't want to be in the franchise business. So, but, you know, you go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. So, so I'm, just, I'm just trying to get like, uh, this is your baby, to let your baby out there. I know the money's fantastic and great, but you, you, for an entrepreneur who is so uh, so focused on quality, it seems that, where does that line, where's that line drawn between giving a part of your business or really giving your brand up and knowing you're doing the right thing? Well, believe it or not, we you can pretty well measure uh, the franchisee's quality if you have the right systems in place. We had a fantastic matrix for measuring quality, service, cleanliness, uniforms. Um, the first thing that uh, Jeff Smith and his team did when um, when I left was they took out the measurement system. Um, and over the last three or four months, I've probably had 600, 600 Papa John pizzas. I know what they're serving. The, the products deteriorated um, and they're getting away with it because they got a captive audience with COVID. Uh, the service you can ask any franchisee, it's probably the worst in the history. They're getting away again because they have a captive audience with COVID. Uh, MCE is how we measure cleanliness. They got rid of that. The institutional knowledge. We had people that are worth the company 15, 20, 25, 30 years um, that they just got rid of, put on the street. And, you know, Rob Lynch has no pizza experience. The board of directors has no pizza experience. So now you have a company that really is not walking the talk with better ingredients, better pizza, because they don't measure it, they don't enforce it. 
they're focused on short-term stock price in a hyper-competitive market, to me, sooner or later, that's a recipe for a failure. But as long as COVID sticks around and they've got that captive audience, they're gonna get away with things that we could never get away with when I was there. So to answer your question, we had a measurement system so we could hold their feet to the fire with the quality and the service. Um, they they want to be, you know, they, they want to take shortcuts and they want to, you know, cut corners, of course, that's human nature. But, you know, as a founder of the company and, and the, the CEO, the chairman, you, you just have to say standards are not negotiable and this is how we're going to do it. And we had a lot of success with that recipe. When I left, I was kind of confused at first. Why did the franchisees, aren't they, why aren't they up in arms? Because the, the whole false narrative on the race thing, everybody knew that was a false narrative. And the franchisees kind of went along with it. And I found out later from some of the more astute, bigger franchisees is, well, John, they know if you're back in that saddle, they're going to, you're going to hold us accountable. <laughs> See, it's like somebody that's, you get, you're trying to get them fit. They don't like it. They don't like having to make the product better, or give them better service, even though it's in their best uh, interest. And, you know, things slipped, sales started to crash. Papa John's, uh, before Jeff, Jeff Smith came in in February of 19, was in default on their loans. They were in default on their covenants on the loans. That's how close that company was uh, to going, the, going under. And Jeff Smith came in, saved them. He was getting ready to have financial problems. February, March of 2020, COVID, COVID came along. So these guys, have just had a real lucky, God bless them. I say that sincerely because um, right now the franchisees of Papa John's are making more money than they've ever made because they can get away with, you know, some of the things we talked about and sales go up, which, you know, sooner or later that'll come to a halt. I love the franchisees. I've made a lot of money. I want them to make a lot of money. So on one hand, it's like, wow, I wish I could have got away with that, which I really don't wish I could have got away with it because you don't get away with things like that for very long. On the other hand, you know, I, um, I'm really happy that the franchisees are doing well, and they are doing well this year. Why is pizza such a great business for COVID? Because you're trapped at home. I mean, you can only have five people in your Thanksgiving dinner in Kentucky. I mean, they, they, you're basically trapped at home. <clears throat> it's delivery. Uh, it's convenient. It's got great value. And remember, you can, they advertise it as touchless. So it goes right from the peel out of a 480-degree oven right in the box, and you never touch it. So pizza, all the companies, all the businesses that have gone under in the food business, went, a lot of that went straight to pizza. Mm. So everybody you heard got a bad deal on COVID that's in the restaurant business. All that went to pizza delivery, not all of it, but a big jar, majority of it. Um, and so good for them. Wow. Uh, that, that's, 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 you know, you, I, don't, I never thought about that, that pizza being the ideal business for COVID in terms of the way it's, it's transferred from, from kitchen your kitchen to my kitchen, uh, it's it's economical. It could feed a lot of people. It's enjoyable. It's you don't see people eat pizza and and not smile. You know, <laughs> it's one of those it's one of those foods that make you happy. Well, that was a delicious. It's fun and it brings friends and family together. I always lo I love the business. I love everything about the pizza business. I wish a slice of pizza wasn't so heavy in calories. I mean, it's it's four hundred calories a slice. So you and I probably can eat. Three or four slices. Oh, never stop. I could eat a pie. Okay. I could. There's no question, man. <laughs> I, I once tried in high school to eat a Sicilian pie. Uh, you know, with the square. I don't know if you guys have them, but it's the square thick pizzas. The Sicilians. It's nine slice, and it's with a big crust. I only got through like six. I, it was way that, too much. That, that, that's Jets pizza. That's destroyed style pizza. That uh, Jets makes the best Sicilian. Deep oh. pizza on the market by far. Try Jets pizza. I mean, it's unbelievable. I love the crust. You know, the bigger the crust, I, I never like the thin pizzas. I like the I like the crust. My wife, on the other hand, she likes them thin with a lot. You know, just more cheese. And I hate each. I never like cheese, but I just love the bread and the whole thing about it. It was just uh, Sicilian slices were huge. Uh, it's one thing we tried to do all along with Papa John's as we were a big chain and we were public, but we always tried to act like an independent pizzeria. We always referred to ourselves as um, America's largest independent pizzeria, you know, because we we did all that. We hit the numbers and we made the money. We did all that. But the number one goal was take care of the product and take care of the people. So we were a public company, but we ran it like a private company. And I think that's what makes Jets Pizza so powerful is you got a family, you know, the Jet family up there with, I think there were seven, eight kids involved with it, but it's a family business. So they run it like a family business, which is going to be authentic Sicilian 
you know, real superior quality food. If you would invest in one public company, one pizza company now that's public, which one would you pick? Well, if you don't, if you don't think Papa John's is going to be sold, I'd shorten the shit out of Papa John's. If you, if they got it sold to Inspire Rourke, you know, they could get 110, 120 bucks a share. But if they don't sell that company, I mean, that's a, that's a $50 stock on a good day. So if I was going to invest in the pizzerias, any publicly held uh, company, Yum, Domino's, Papa John's, I would short Papa John's. Tell me big, what you, I would short a big money. Tell me what you'd buy, not what you'd short. I, the best horse in the race right now on a public company basis is Domino's. But I mean, the PE is astronomical and I don't know what's going to happen to their sales after COVID uh, subsides. But I mean, you can't go with Yum Brams. You can't go with Papa John's unless you think you got it sold. So you got to go with Domino's. Domino's, that's, a, that's amazing. And that's, that's a great example of a company that passed its founder, its founder passed away, gave up the reins, and they're still, there are very few companies, like you said, McDonald's, Walmart's, are able to do that after the owner leaves, the owner founder. It's just, it's such a rarity. And, and you know, you're right. There was a, a book I read several years ago that said the average S&P 500 company has, and this is about 20 years ago I read this book, has a lifespan of around 50 years. I think that lifespan's much shorter now. I think half of the S&P or Fortune 5, the last 20, I think half are gone. I'll look that number up and get back with you. But it's it's like, wow, you know, you know, you don't hear about that. Yeah. You don't hear about it. It's, it's, not, and it's not like it's Kodak where, you you know, film's no longer, you know, uh, utility. You know, it's, um, it's, it's actually mismanagement. And, you know, our argument is if you want to be successful as a public company, you got to be a, uh, abnormal. We, we're, we're convinced that uh, normal public companies with normal, brilliant, you know, intelligent company boards who follow all Delaware corporate, uh, you know, governance, we think they're completely lined for failure. We think if you're going to be successful as a public company like Musk or some of these other mavericks, you got to do things a little differently. You got to be abnormal. That's what we think. Well, look, man, uh, you got to be a Zuckerberg. Uh, you got to be Google. You got to do something outrageous and get a lot of crap thrown at you and have Congress breathing down your neck to be great. It just, ha you know, if you like everyone else, you're not going to be anything. And, and that's one of the problems with PC is PC um, it teaches you not to have diversity of thought. All the great ideas are diversity of thought. I mean, new ideas, new innovation, because you think a different way. And that's what I don't like about uh, the stifling of the creative mind, independent critical judgment with all this PC correctness. NASCAR, but Dale Earnhardt was there, and Petty, and Yarborough, and George Gordon. I mean, they were fun. You never knew what those guys were going to do. And I'm not saying that you need to be, you know, too much of a gunslinger. But I mean, live a little bit, make it interesting for God's sake. Don't, you know, don't be so stiff that yeah. you, you know, that's crazy. I'm with you. I see a lot of businesses uh, in this environment, in this kind of political correctness of mine, playing not to lose instead of playing to win. Yeah, amen. And you can't win by playing not to lose. You will definitely lose. If you're scared, if you're, if you're gonna run on being scared, and chasing that quarterly stock price, you know, that's that, that's not sustainable. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, chasing the quarterly stock price, wondering what analysts think of you, what the marketplace thinks of you, what somebody on Twitter thinks of you, what the cancel culture thinks of you, you can operate in that environment and be successful. It's just inherently impossible to do so. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, you know, that's the problem with boards. They're, they're put under so much pressure with the media, which tends to lean left, social media, which tends to lean left. So if you have a conservative point of view or you're principally or oriented and you don't agree with a certain ideology, you get attacked. Well, I don't particularly like it, but it's not going to, it's not going to change my thoughts or my principles or the way I go about my day. But if you got a weak uh, corporate board and they're scared of those on oncoming missiles of um, the social media and the going viral um, you know, a company can get away from itself pretty quickly. And I think there's a lot of companies that have folded tent with staying solid and caved into PC and some of these other crazy things that are going on with, uh, with our society right now. Yeah. What's act two for you, John? Act two. Um, I think first thing is you get ready, you get your ready, yourself ready for war. 
I mean, you know, you get, you get your fitness in line, you, you get your friends. Um, you know, the nice thing about the incident with Papa John's is we got, you know, a lot of friends you thought were friends weren't really friends. And so thank God they're gone. You attract a whole new level of friends and you, you, you fortify yourself with the right people. You catch your breath, you take care of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And then when it's time to go back in the arena, you know, I mean, you know, Peyton was ready for the 50th Super Bowl. He was ready to go back in. He wasn't ready to quit in Indianapolis. And, uh, you know, you, you know, I'm, I'm 59 and, and there's the fire in the belly is burning like a, you know, a boiler on the Titanic. I mean, it's warm, it's ready to go, but you have to be patient. Um, and you have to be opportunistic. Uh, right now, the world is kind of crazy. I mean, you know, this this whole PC and uh, these crazy things going on politically, have, this has got to subside. You know, you can't, okay, I, I want minimum wage to go up because uh, I want people to make more money. I've never paid anybody minimum wage, I don't think. They start out, but they always, if they're good, you, you got to take them up, otherwise you'll lose, lose them. them. Yeah. Uh, right? Overregulations, we talked about that. Fuel, we talked about that. Um, but you've got to let this subside a little bit and hope the pendulum swings back a little bit uh, better towards something that's a little more rational, a little bit more uh, opportunistic uh, for myself. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not in a hurry, but I'm in a hurry. So I'm going as fast, as slow as I can. So you're picking your spots. You're picking your yeah, spots. You to, yeah, you have to because the whole world's going to watch the next venture. And there's a lot of people out there that don't want you to succeed. And, um, you know, and, and yeah, you want, you want to, I mean, you either can run a business, you can run a company or you can't. I mean, when I left Papa John's, it was 5,200, 5,300 stores, 16 and 17. And today here it is 2021 and there's 5,300 stores. <laughs> they haven't grown any. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> you know, it just absolutely boggles my mind. What a, what a, what a, everything in this country that it offers where a guy in a back room could start a business and create 5,300 companies, stores, restaurants throughout the world from a single idea. Where else could yeah. that, where else, where else could that take place, man? You must, I, I know there are mornings you look in the mirror and you just think lousy things about yourself. Cause we all do, but it gotta be some mornings you look at you say, wow. Yeah. Uh, why me? Yeah. Why me? That, that happens several times every day and you have to share that wealth. Um, I, I'm to be honest with you, not to be too, uh, kind of out there. I'm concerned about humanity. I'm a little, I'm concerned about, you know, where we're, where we're headed. Uh, I do think America is still the greatest place in the world. Um, but you know, our liberties and our freedoms and our property rights, those, those are things that people lost their lives for and took literally tens of thousands of years to come up with this thing called the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the three branches. And uh, if anybody, one thing I would like the listeners to think about, we can become Cuba or Venezuela. You say, well, I, I'll talk to a millennial, but say, well, we're not Spain or France yet. I'm like, why even, why even head that way? You know, I mean, that's the argument. Um, but be real careful uh, with respect to your freedom, your liberties, your freedom of speech, um, your property rights, um, the dollar, the arithmetic is not an opinion. You know, think about your spending, save, and uh, be appreciative that we land, we live in a, a, a country that, you know, you do have freedom of speech. And, you know, you do, you can't have different opinions, and that's a healthy thing. And that's the one message I would send to our youth is be careful. We, a lot of people died for these liberties, and they're precious. And once you lose them, they're awfully hard to get back. You think politics is in your future? I don't see that. I don't think that, you know, my four, four criteria for my next adventure is it has to be in my soul. I mean, pizza was in my soul. I love pizza. I mean, it's in my soul. Two is it has to benefit humanity. It's got to make other people's lives better. It's got to have mutually beneficial characteristics and attributes I don't want anything to do with it. Three is it has to be scalable because I like big stuff. And four, it has to be uh, sustainable. You know, I don't want to be feeding this thing every month. That's stupid. So that's my four criteria. But politics, I don't think so. Unless I'm forced to do it. When things get so bad where we got, you know, civil wars and, you know, we got uh, over, you know, there's an overrule, an overthrown of, of things and that you have to, somebody's got to step up and grab the bull by the horns. 
but it would have to be uh, a last resort. At the, time, at the time you left Papa John's, how many millionaires were created uh, in the franchise system? <laughs> well, we started with $1,600. Um, Company one time was worth three and a half billion. I'm talking you know, about franchisees. How many guys bought a franchise from you and became well, a millionaire? There's seven hundred. There's probably oh, there were thousands, thousands of people, thousands for sure. Because there's 600, 700 people in the system right now, and they're all millionaires. You know, and then when you got to figure those kind of those folks have turned over, and that doesn't include the the twenty thousand uh, folks that are on my payroll. So yeah, thousands, maybe I even I don't think ten thousand. But, but all, um, the, all the suppliers also, not even including oh, them. Yeah, yeah my, my tomato sauce supplier has two helicopters, two, two. My, my cheese supplier has three jets, three. I think it's great. It's America. Everybody wins. Wow, really amazing. All right, John Schneider, amazing. You're the American success story, man. You took it from zero to hero, and you're, we're waiting for <laughs> act two, man. And, um, and uh, you know, I think what people forget, and – Put all the bad press aside and whatever. Don't judge it on that. Bottom line, a 15-year-old kid with a dream and an idea and a passion can create billions in our capitalistic society and give back so much, regardless of agreeing or disagreeing with what type of person you are. You've put literally food on the table for so many people and created them, given them the opportunity to have the American dream by just buying a franchise. Anyone could have done it. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Oh, been man. great. My pleasure, brother. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.